Father, we, we sing. We, we sing with everything we've got. And for some of us, that's not very much. But even if we were superstars and could play instruments and sing like nobody else, God, it still wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to express how holy you are, how good you are, how mighty you are. So thank you for the promise that in some way you have taken our worship and made it something pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Father, I pray each of us would lift our eyes above our current situation unto the foot, the throne of the one who is, who was, and who will ever be. It's in the name of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Go ahead, take a seat. Take your Bibles, go to Philippians 2. Take me a few minutes to get there, but I will get there, and then we'll jump again after that. But Philippians chapter 2, as we were preparing for this service this week, knowing that we wanted to make sure our eyes were lifted up beyond all of the events around us, all of the newscasts, all of the social media posts, all that business, um, as I spent time kind of digging in and, and studying and reading and researching. What I came across is I had a significant moment that was like, oh man, we as Americans are infatuated with all things that have to do with royalty. You realize that? I mean, we, we, it just, it consumes us. It grabs our attention um, it, it, from history or pseudo-history, if you think about King Arthur, right? A lot of stories about King Arthur probably aren't very historical, but they're very entertaining. And so as you, you look at the, the history of King Arthur being the one who can pull the sword from the stone, uh, he protects the, the Brits from the Saxons, he, he has all of these, these uh, amazing leadership qualities, he gathers the knights of the round table, you got Camelot, I mean, we, we, we are infatuated with that kind of stuff. Even, even in our little kids' movies, think about the Lion King, the great King Mufasa, Right? So you've got Mufasa, this, this amazing king who is powerful and rules with great authority over the pride lands. And, and, and yet not only that, he's the kind, caring, compassionate daddy to his little man named Simba. So he spends time with Simba, he teaches him, he plays with him, uh, he's he got the typical parent thing going where he gets woken up by him, he disciplines him, all the while maintaining that perfect balance between powerful ruler king and compassionate caring daddy all the way up to the moment when his brother Scar murders him for the throne and if I just spoiled that movie for you come on it was 25 years ago you'll be fine we have affinity for that type of story well even as Americans we get sucked into the whole royal thing from England don't we I know way too much about royal weddings I really don't care about that, but I, I've, it's been fed to me, not even by my family, just constantly, who's getting married this time? Who, who's the next king of England going to be? And it's almost like we, we're not even listening to this poor lady, Queen Elizabeth II, who's been on the throne for 68 years because she's just yesterday. We can't wait for the next one. It's just in us. The history of the world is told with tales of kings and kingdoms. So which leader is it that's going to, to, to carry their people out of where they are now into the land of all their hopes and dreams. It's the same thing that happened with Israel. You'll remember back in 
1 Samuel chapter 8, the people are longing for a king, and they tell Samuel the prophet, we want a king. Your sons are no good as judges. We, we need a king. And Samuel thinks this is a terrible idea, so he goes to God, and he says, God, this is an awful idea. And God says, tell them what this king is going to take from them if they actually get a king. And so Samuel stands before the people. He says, listen, if you truly want a king, if you bring somebody in to be your king, here is what he's going to do. He's going to take all your young men, your brothers, your husbands, your sons, and he's going to make them soldiers in his army. If you have a king, he's going to take all the women of the kingdom and have them serve him. If they're, you take this king, he's going to take all of your servants. He's going to use them as his own. If you, if you bring in a king, he's going to take your land. He's going to take your cattle. He's going to take your money. And the people, instead of being amazed at, at how horrible an idea it was to be king, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge for us. Our king will go out before us. And he will fight our battles. I don't think they heard what they said. We'll finally have someone who will, will lead us the way we want to go. God makes it clear to Samuel. I'll put this up here in front of you. God heard. Samuel, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you right now that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. That, that desire they had for a king was actually rejecting their true king. And as the monarchy began in Israel, it began to show some significant problems with the kings. And here's the biggest one. You ready? They were human. And in being human, they were sinners. So almost all of the kings of Israel, both Israel and Judah, the divided monarchy, but almost all of the kings, all but seven kings, made that position about themselves, about what they could gain from having that position, about the importance that it gave them, about the power that it gave them, instead of about serving God and his people. These men were arrogant, proud sinners whose weaknesses became the weaknesses of their people. And so if you look at the monarchy of Israel, you would have to say, all in all, it was, a, it was a failure. But it wasn't just the king's fault. Because the people were guilty as well. The people leaned on kings to do for them what they weren't designed to do. The people leaned on kings to provide for them what God was supposed to provide for them. And so the kings couldn't help but fail because they weren't built to maintain or to, to handle or to bear that load. It's, it's, it would be like taking this building and making this table the, the cornerstone of the building as its foundation. I mean, this thing, it can hold my Bible. It's a little sketchy with my water. I'm watching it shake when I do this. I'm getting a little worried. You put a building on this, and it's going to collapse because it was never intended to bear the weight of the entire building. So were the kings. The people were so quick to lean on man for only what God was supposed to do for them. They wanted a king. We all do. We all do. It's in us. It's part of our nature. It's, it's, it's in us. We want this king who will 
care for his people with great compassion. We want a king that's victorious and we can celebrate for a long time his victory. We want a strong king who's going to decimate his enemies. And the good news of today is the good news of yesterday and the good news of tomorrow. We have that king. Philippians chapter 2 describes him a little as Paul is trying to unpack for the church at Philippi this, this Jesus that they're supposed to exemplify. He says, what I want you to do is adopt the same attitude as Jesus. And, and what ends up happening with Paul, which happens all the time, is Paul begins talking about Jesus and he gets lost about what he started talking about. So it becomes this huge moment of, of theology and adoration and doxology as he begins to talk about Jesus. And he says this of Jesus, Jesus who existed in the form of God, verse six of chapter two, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Guys, that's our king. But look at how our king cares for us. From the highest of highs, he existed in the form of God. Eternal glory before the world began to the lowest of lows, emptied himself of that glory and came as a baby born in a manger, born into poverty, born to a teenage mom and her blue-collar husband-to-be. And he lived a life we weren't able to live. As a baby, he terrified King Herod because King Herod knew there was another king that was going to come replace him at some point. As a young man, as a 12-year-old boy, he went to the temple and he sat before the teachers and he astonished them with his theological knowledge and his authority because it was in fact himself he was speaking about. In manhood, he ruled over nature. He hushed storms, he walked on water, he made blind eyes see and deaf ears hear and mute tongues speak, he made leap Uh, let's try that backwards, lame men leap. (laughs) And all the while he was doing those things, he was obedient to the law in everything, even to the point that he died on the cross. He was turned over to his enemies, betrayed by a friend, denied by another, and deserted by the rest. He was beaten, spit upon, cursed, He was mocked by his accusers. He was declared guilty by the very men he came to rescue. Nailed to a cross between two thieves and while dying watched his executioners gamble for his only piece of clothing. And in the end, in agony, victorious agony, and yet still agony, cried out, it is finished as he yielded his spirit. See, our king died for sin. Not for his own. He was perfect. He was spotless. He was without sin. Our king died for your sin. Our king suffered the curse of the law, not because he had broken it, but because you had. Our king gave his life so you could be reconciled to God through the cross. And now 2,000 years have passed since the, the crucifixion, and prime ministers and presidents and kings and emperors have all come and gone, and now their names are just these dusty names in libraries of somewhere. But his name, the name of our king, 
abounds more and more and more. Because his story didn't end with death. Now, there's, there's always talk about the big election surprises. And there's been some huge election surprises in years gone by. There has never been an election surprise bigger than the one the soldiers got when they looked in the tomb and found it empty. When they looked in the tomb and realized that Jesus was gone, the celebration that came from the disciples celebrating the fact that Jesus was alive, he picked his life back up again after three days, exactly as he had promised. Because his enemies couldn't destroy him and the grave couldn't hold on to him. Death couldn't defeat him and sin didn't have a chance because that's our king. And in all of that, he allowed himself to be humiliated so that you could be reconciled. And we long for the care of a king who will show compassion to his people. And that's exactly what our king did for us. Not only that, our king is going to have a day, not just when his people gather to celebrate him, but every person. The entirety of humanity, the entirety of the universe is going to acknowledge him as king. Let's keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess. Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's not just his own people, how do you know? Well, that part that I left out, actually by accident, but that's okay, I left it out. Every knee will bow, the ones in heaven, the ones in earth, the ones under the earth. Pick another spot. Where do people actually exist? Where could they be? They're in heaven, they're on earth, they're under the earth. That's everybody. So at, at the name of Jesus, every person is going to bow. Not just his own people, but every person will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's our king. A king who wants to demonstrate compassion to you because he cares for you. Take your Bibles, flip over to Revelation chapter 7 with me. As I read through, starting in verse 9, I'm going to encourage you not to get lost in details. If you come across something you don't understand or an image that you can't quite wrap your head around or a person or a thing that you're not sure who it is or what it is, if you come to that, a good rule of thumb in the study of Revelation is to stop trying to figure it out and instead allow your eyes to fall where their eyes fall. See what they see. Hear what it is that they're saying. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John says this, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, along with the elders and the four living creatures, They fell face down before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, this is actually kind of funny, then one of the elders asked me, so so who are those people in the white robes? Where'd they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, I don't. 
So these are those who came out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne is going to shelter them. They'll no longer hunger. They'll no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of waters of life. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This huge number of people gathers so immense that you can't possibly number them. The victory chant that comes from the people having the palm branches chanting and shouting in celebration that salvation belongs to God, how gracious he is to allow us to have it. They stand before God with those palm branches in victory, not because they voted the right way, not because they were in the right party, not because they were in the right place at the right time. They're standing there. Why? Because they have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. There's joy for them for all of eternity because of their great king. You have these other beings, the elders, the angels, all of those who are um, chanting over and over again that the king is worthy. There's celebration in his presence. Day and night he shelters us. uh, The lamb is going to shepherd us. He's going to lead us to safety. He's going to lead us to water that brings satisfaction. He's going to comfort us from all distress. You understand that, right? To be comforted from all distress. Any difficulty that you have experienced here on earth, you will experience no more. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he didn't do it to intervene in your life today so that your life could be perfect today. He did it so that he could intervene and make your eternity perfect, so that you could have eternal joy with him. And that celebration in heaven is going to last forever as we worship our one true king. Folks, lift your eyes above the chaos of the day. I don't care what it is. Fix your eyes on the throne room of God. See your king. So so I am guilty, and my family can attest to it. I am guilty of missing many moments. Not because I'm absent, um, but because I become mentally absent. It happens on vacations, it happens birthdays, it happens on dates with my wife, it actually happens here in church during worship services where I can be present, and yet I'm always thinking and worrying about when the next thing is going to happen that's wrong. I'm always concerned about how my plans are going to fall apart. I'm waiting for that next disappointment to come. There will be no disappointment in heaven. There will be no disappointment as you view the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. There will be no disappointment as you wave your palm branches and shout your celebratory shout. You think fireworks are good here on earth? They're going to be amazing in heaven. I don't think fireworks are sin. I can't tell by your faces, but I'm saying you agree with me. Amen. Thank you. The celebration that we get to enjoy will be unending. Because our king is never up for re-election. Our king will never be impeached. Our king will never lose a vote. Here's the other part. Our king never has to win a vote. He's king. And his name's Jesus. And he's a mighty king. He's a strong king. Flip over a few pages to chapter 19 of Revelation. In this, we get to see that moment 
where Jesus stakes his claim as king. Revelation 19, verse 11, it says this, Then I saw heaven, uh, 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened. There was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and he makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has written a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, the conqueror arrives on his white horse, a sign of great victory. His name is faithful and true. Earlier in Revelation, that points to Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus, the perfect, reliable, trustworthy one, arriving to take what is rightfully his. He's called the Word. The Word. The Revelation is written by the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the book of John. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word, the word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That is Jesus Christ himself. But then there's this third name. It's unknown. It says it's known only to Jesus. And I will tell you this, there are a lot of people who think they figured out what that name says. But I'm pretty sure it says the only one that knows that name is Jesus. Last time I checked, you're not Jesus. You know what's fascinating about that? It says something to us. It says, although Jesus may be known, there's still an aspect of him that is unknown. And though there's there's an aspect of him that is unknown, he's made himself known as judge and savior and king. So, so that means throughout all of eternity, there is so much unknown still in Jesus. It'll be our great joy to unpack those facets of his majesty and dignity and glory and beauty. Here's this one riding the white horse. His eyes are on fire. He is unstoppable. He sees all. He knows all. There's nothing that is hidden from his view. He comes before these armies and he's wearing many crowns. You know where he got all the crowns? From you. As we came into his presence, what did we do with our crowns? Cast them at his feet. It says his robe was dipped in blood. I believe his robe bears the sign of his victory. I believe the blood on the robe is actually his own blood. Because he doesn't need to win a battle to be the victorious conqueror. The battle has already been won by the finished work of the cross. The armies that are behind him, they're not even needed. So, so here, I don't know about you, um, maybe you were like me, and you got to be like fascinated and uh, amazed and watched all of those awesome Christian movies that are so well put together about the end times. I mean, that's like the height of Oscar-worthy movies, right? But they get to the final battle, and it's a picture of all these modern military uh, weaponry. You get, you've got tanks and machine guns and Apache helicopters and all these other things that they imagined, and, and, they're, and all these kings and armies are coming against Jesus, and it's going to be this huge battle like World War II on steroids. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be vicious. And in fact, that's wrong. The final battle comes. The conqueror arrives on his white horse. He stands before the armies who would want to destroy him, and he looks at them and says, I win. And they all fall. The same mouth that created everything you see. 
speaks and claims his victory. He rules with an iron rod. He has come to deal with sin, to settle the destiny of those who are in rebellion to him, and he takes his rightful place as king. Listen, I know, I know, you want a king. We all do. But don't be like the Israelites. Don't look for a king from among your own. Don't allow a cheap substitute. Don't allow any puny man to try to take the place of the one true king. Look for a king who's unlike any other, a kind king who cares for us and longs to show compassion to us, a victorious king that we can celebrate for eternity, a strong king who will decimate his enemies. There's only one king like that. His name is Jesus. Paul talks about Jesus in Colossians 1. He says this, We look at Jesus and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at Jesus and we see God's original purpose in everything he created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible, invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and he holds it all together right up to this moment. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there. Towering far above everything far above everyone. So spacious is he that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people, things, animals, and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. That's my king. Is he yours? Father, thank you for mercy. For without your mercy, (laughs) we would have no way to stand. Without your mercy, we would be miserable and hopeless. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is king, that he was king, and that he will be king. Thank you that as uncertain as the days are that we live in, there is absolutely no change with you. Thank you that sin's been conquered. That death doesn't get the final word. Thank you that Jesus' sacrifice has guaranteed victory for us. Thank you that someday soon we'll join our voices with the multitudes of people who've been rescued by the blood of the Lamb that we'll throw our crowns at his feet, that our faith will become sight. God, we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, God, I ask that you would give us full voice and energy to declare what is true, that there is one king, and that his name is Jesus.